Section 17 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Evidence Furnished by the Science of Likenesses, Part 1. In the preceding chapter, it was shown, incidentally to the subject of limbs and their nature, that science makes it a duty of the highest importance to discover and trace the resemblances which frequently exist between apparently diverse and unlike structures. Such likenesses were illustrated by a reference to the similarity which could readily be found to exist between such outwardly unlike organs as the arm of man, the wing of the bird, the foreleg of the horse, the paddle of the whale or dolphin, and the wing of the bat. In a minor degree also, but still provable from the same standpoint, the paired fins of fishes could be shown to agree with the limbs of other animals to which they present no obvious affinities. Beneath the diverse appearances of limbs, one and the same type thus appears to exist. An examination of the hard parts or skeletons of these appendages readily reveals the likeness which adaptation to diverse conditions of life has produced. In connection with the limb likenesses in question, certain important considerations connected with the meaning of such similarities were briefly noted. How or why a common type or plan should be discernible beneath well-nigh endless variety of outward form and function was a question which naturally obtruded itself upon the notice of the scientific observer. Such a query, it was remarked, presented, like so many other matters of scientific interest, but two methods of solution. In the one case, the reply might take the form of the unquestioning and tacit assumption that such things were so formed from the beginning according to some ideal plan or type, for the construction of which type, however, no reason can be assigned. Conformity to a type is an expression which merely restates what everybody admits and what the examination of the limbs on any hypothesis plainly shows. To say that things were created so presents a complete parallel to the famous woman's reason in the two gentlemen of Verona, or to Tom Brown's equally renowned explanation of the dislike to Dr. Fell, a parody, by the way, on Marshall. Non amelte sabiti nec possum desere quare, hoc tantum possum desire non amelte. Turning to the other side of the question, all that is mysterious and inexplicable on the special creation hypothesis becomes clear enough on that of development and modification. By the idea of development is implied the derivation of the similar forms or parts from some common type, through natural laws of heritage and descent. By modification or adaptation, we mean to indicate that potent power or factor which seizing the common type molds the structure, limb or body, to the special way of life in which the being ultimately comes to walk. If the latter idea be correct or feasible, we can readily assign a reason why limbs or any other series of structures in a given set of animals should present such a close likeness. Conformity to type is no meaningless expression when used by the evolutionist. By his theory, he views this conformity as a proof of the blood relationship, far or near, as the case may be, of the animals which exhibit the likeness in question. Such similarity is a proof of affinity, which can only be accounted for in all its bearings on the supposition that the beings exhibiting it are really kith and kin, but of varying degrees of relationship. 
it can readily be understood how important in the eyes of the modern naturalist this study of likenesses has become since the facts it reveals largely assist him in constructing the true pedigree of the living world there are many other considerations which serve to show the important nature of such a branch of inquiry an importance equaled only by the interest which its pursuit is certain to evoke when for instance it can be found that two organs so utterly unlike as the air bladder of a fish and the lungs of a man are in reality closely connected in their nature the information which the study of likenesses places at our disposal is seen to be of a kind which tends very materially to extend the knowledge that bacon declared aided the relief of man's estate and the task of seeking and finding resemblances has had its due effect in solving not a few of the puzzles of biology only from the considerations it brings to view and through the influence of the new way in which it compels us to regard forms and organs has the mystery of such a subject as that of rudimentary organs been dispelled the splint bones of a horse when examined by the light of this study guide us as we have seen to the history of the equine race and the transformations of animals and plants teem with new interest when investigated on the principles which the science of likenesses brings to view it is to the details of such a subject that we now invite attention our illustrations will be culled from both worlds of life and in our search after the likenesses whereon hangs the past history of the living being we may perchance light upon considerations not far removed from the wider questions that border the origin of man himself the science of likenesses is known to specialists as homology and it may further our ready appreciation of the details to be presently treated in these pages if we make mention likewise of the term analogy and its meaning the latter word is as a rule very loosely used in ordinary life scientifically employed its meaning is clear enough in a dictionary we find it explained as meaning correspondence or likenesses in some ways proportions or effects obviously the term is used in a general sense to mean any degree of likeness resemblance or relationship between objects in science the word analogy has but one distinct meaning it implies identity or correspondence in function or use and nothing more when two things are used for the same purpose they are analogous and no further resemblances or likenesses are required in science to justify the use of the term everyone knows that a bird's wing is a very different structure from that of a fly or butterfly the one is really a forelimb the other being merely an expansion of the skin of the body but despite their wide difference in structure they are truly analogous being used for one and the same purpose that of flight in this sense alone can any two objects be truly termed analogous now turning to homology we discover a deeper relationship between organs and parts than that indicated by analogy that two things may be truly named homologous it is not necessary to think of their use in any sense the all-important consideration on which the science of likenesses hangs is the fact of identity or correspondence in fundamental structure or in origin such a correspondence is illustrated by the subject of limbs already referred to the arm of man the foreleg of a horse and the wing of a bird are used each for a different purpose they are not analogous but they are undoubtedly homologous 
because, beneath the diversity of form and function, we can readily perceive the striking similarity of fundamental structure or type. Thus, things may not be what they seem when viewed by homology, for the wings of bird and butterfly, alike in the popular sense, are utterly unlike, and regarded in the same light, many things are what they do not seem. The seeming unlikenesses of arm, wing, and foreleg are thus merely superficial and serve to hide the deeper realities that link them firmly together as the same in type, and presumably the same in origin. It may happen, lastly, that two organs may be analogous and homologous, but the presence of both degrees of likenesses is at the best accidental, or induced by like conditions of life which do not affect the deeper considerations which homology brings before us. The wing of the bird and that of the bat are formed each from a forelimb, although in diverse ways, and each subserves the purpose of flight. Analogy and homology seem to run in parallel lines in this instance, but the conditions in virtue of which a quadruped like the bat has acquired its powers of flight may have been, and probably were, different in nature, as they certainly were in time, from those under which the bird learned to soar in the air. This latter point, however, is foreign to the main issue before us. Sufficient for our present purpose are the thoughts that homology and analogy are two distinct things, that homology indicates the deeper and real likenesses between organs and parts, and that these two forms of likeness are not necessarily connected or coexistent. So much by way of introduction to the subject of the science of likenesses. It requires but little guidance to enable the mind to follow up the line of thought already mentioned in the preceding remarks, which shows the function of this branch of inquiry in detecting the hidden relationships and bonds which connect one living being with another, or one class of organisms with a neighboring class. Such relationships, as everyone knows, are indicated by the systems of classification and arrangement which form an important part of every science and, one may add, of many matters connected with everyday existence as well. Thus, the classification of the objects under his study or care is equally important for the botanist and librarian, and in either case, the aim of the system of arrangement is to bring together things that are like, and to separate those that are unlike. It matters not how this procedure is effected. Classifications vary with well-nigh each person who undertakes their formation and the needless multiplication of systems of arrangement, equally with the persistent invention of new cognomens for already well-named species, constitute the two chief sorrows of the well-regulated scientific mind. The best classification is, of course, the natural, but it so happens that this particular arrangement is not always easy of construction, a fact chiefly explicable on the ground that the natural relationships of living beings are often hard to seek and difficult to find. When the popular classification of the fish with the whale, one, it may be added, not characteristic of primitive minds alone, is replaced by the union of the whale with the quadrupeds, seeing that it has warm blood, brings forth its young alive, and nourishes them by means of milk, a grossly artificial system of arrangement is superseded by a true and natural one. That a whale need not be a fish because it swims, or is fish-like, is thus evident, and the correctness of our arrangement of whales and fishes, and of the whole animal and plant worlds, 
must of necessity depend on the completeness of our knowledge of the objects we intend to classify. Now it is exactly the difficulties which stand in the way of forming a natural arrangement of animals and plants which are lightened by the study of homology as the science of likenesses. From the mere arrangement and classification of living beings, it may be readily seen how we advance through the study of scientific resemblances to questions of deeper import, connected in these latter days with the problem of the very beginnings and origin of all living things. Before the days of evolution, at least as represented in its typical phases of modern times, speculative philosophy was hard at work, trying to discover the archetype underlying the familiar types and varied plans of animal and plant structure. Goethe and Oken, for instance, by the most remarkable of coincidences, ventilated an idea concerning the ideal plan of the skull, which had been independently suggested to each philosopher by a casual glance at the bleached skull of a sheep in the one case and of a deer in the other. This idea was expressed in the theory worked out with patience and care amongst ourselves by Professor Owen and known as the vertebral theory of the skull. Briefly stated, it was held that the skull in reality consisted of a modified vertebrae, or joints of the backbone, and that so far from being a something different from the other parts of the skeleton, the skull was really modeled on the type of the spine. Owen recognized four such vertebrae in the skull, and it need hardly be remarked that the views of Owen as expressions of philosophical anatomy were far in advance of those of Oken and Goethe, the former of whom went so far in the matter of speculation pure and simple as to assert that in the skull the whole body was represented in miniature. The head, according to Oken, was a kind of multum in parvo of the bodily structures. Therein his subjective philosophy actually found fingers and toes in the shape of the teeth. But the history of zoology includes the recital of a hot and strong controversy over the ideas emanating from Oken and Goethe, and emended and improved by Owen. Soon Owen's views were denied and combated, amongst others, by Huxley in 1858, who held them to be disproved by the study of the skull's development. The skull from its earliest phases was maintained to exhibit a very marked difference from the spine, and if two structures thus differed in their earliest phases, and when their type should have been most apparent, how, it was asked, could their identity be insisted upon? A long and elaborate series of researches has, since the time we speak of, been undertaken with reference to the homology of the skull, and with what result, it may be asked, to the idea of real likeness or unlikeness between skull and spine. The answer to this question would vary with the scientific predilections of the person who replied, but it is not too much to assert that the impetus which was first given to the search after a likeness has been increased by the light which evolution and the science of likenesses have together thrown on the reason why not merely skull and spine should resemble each other, but why likenesses and differences, due to multifarious and varying conditions of life and development, should also exist between these structures. The old view of Goethe in its general acceptation may be held to be strengthened by later research. The recent view of Owen has been modified in some quarters to the effect that no less than twenty segments or vertebrae compose the skulls of higher animals.
but the fundamental conception of the newer view seeks to recognize in the vertebrae of the skull not so much an exact correspondence with the fully developed vertebra as with the primitive type of the latter structure professor w k parker whose labors in this field are so well known for example declares that there exists no definite evidence of segmentation in the history of the highly perfected gristle skull of such a primitive and ancient stock of fishes as the sharks dogfishes and rays and he further remarks that we do not conceive of the skull as being composed of a number of coalesced vertebrae not having perceived any indications of any process of coalescence in the embryo and being unaware of any evidence of the past occurrence of such a transformation in ancient times it need not be added that the likeness of the skull segments of modern anatomists to the complicated vertebrae of which the earlier workers conceived the skull to be composed is by no means included as a part of the views of later research the segments of the skull in other words are not necessarily the elaborate vertebrae we now behold in the spine indeed professor parker is very exact in insisting upon the fact that in fishes and amphibians by which latter name we designate the frogs and their relations there is but one well-defined bony segment to be descried and adds this author in these forms there are no good grounds for assigning to the cranial bones special names indicating a correspondence to particular parts of vertebrae in the skull of quadrupeds there are but three well-defined segments according to professor parker but it does not follow that they constitute three cranial or skull vertebrae and very decisive are his succeeding words we cannot admit that our investigations give any reason for describing the skull as constructed by the modification of a series of vertebrae still less for viewing it as directly made up of a number of cranial vertebrae but our author does not leave us in doubt as to the difference which his views entail between former ideas of the composition of the skull and the results of recent research we find says mr parker that every form of skull that has been investigated every stage in development contributes to one idea which becomes simpler and more intelligible more harmonious by the pursuit of a right process of investigation there is a unity of structure in the skeleton of the head a fundamental formal unity which may always be perceived and an adaptability to the most varied conditions of life in water on land in air which becomes more and not less astonishing as knowledge slowly and surely increases end of section seventeen chapter seven the evidence furnished by the science of likenesses part one